Yep, so we're reading from Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, if you've got your Bibles or your phones. Um, so starting at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, thanks everyone for being here this morning as we get into our, our second week in our series called Next, which is really laying out where we're heading as a church over this year. And so good if you are here for the first time at church or you're just investigating faith for the first time. We love having you along here and I really hope you get a vision for who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and, what, and the, I guess the beauty of his design for his church. And if you are here and with us week after week, or you're new, it's so good to have you in here and, and with us in community. If you're new or newish and you're looking to connect up with church, we have a Connect course starting, which is kind of our on-ramp into our small groups in just two weeks' time. On the Slips would be a great place to put that if you want to jump in. We ran newish last week, which was great fun getting to know some people. Um, but if you wanted to do that, we'd love to have you with us. Um, but last week, uh, as Anna mentioned, we started by looking at Jesus' Great Commission, that he, because of the gospel, because he has saved us by sheer grace, sends us out to serve and to love people. And our hope as a church is that over this year, that by Christmas we'd see people from every generation having come to faith and finding the joy of the gospel for themselves to be able to celebrate that as a community. Next week, we're looking at how, as a church, we can be stewarding our finances and what God has given us toward that end, um, looking at the needs that we have as a church. But this week, we're looking kind of a little bit internally at how it is that a church body is meant to relate to one another. And we're going to see that Christ calls us as a body to serve one another. Which is interesting because the main worldview that we swim in, you could fairly sum up, is a worldview of consumption. Now consumption isn't a new thing, obviously. Humans have always consumed from the very beginning of humanity. We've consumed food and materials for living. There's nothing kind of controversial about that. It's always been the case. God has designed us with a connection to his creation that we are dependent on it to actually live. And so humans have always been consumers. But what is new in a wealthy modern city like Sydney is that consuming has gone from something that we do to something that we are. It has kind of moved from a behavior to a worldview or a way of looking at life. And that's a big shift and a recent shift. In 1955, a retail analyst called Victor Liebau wrote, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. And note what he said there was the shift. 
consumption as a way of life, that it becomes almost religious, spiritual, that it involves committed rituals that we engage with. It goes from just something we do to a worldview with a belief. And the belief at the bottom of this worldview is this. I will be happiest if I can get as much as I can whilst giving as little as I can. That is the consumer worldview in a nutshell. I get as much as I can whilst giving as little as I can. That is the key to happiness. And consumption has moved across all spheres of, of human life. Hookup culture is just the consumer mindset applied to relationships. I get as much of, as I can whilst giving as little of myself as I can. It also affects the way that we see the rest of the world. We want products for as cheap as possible to the point where we don't care how they're made or the conditions in which they are made or what effect it has on the workers or on the environment. It puts us in a mindset so, that so long as I can get as much as I can whilst giving as little as I can, that is the key and the path to happiness. It also infantilizes us a little bit, doesn't it? Because we, we can get so hooked on the consumer mindset as a way of seeing things and a way of approaching things that we don't ask deeper questions. Like when you're on a platform for free, what we really should be asking the question is, if there is a billion dollar company behind this, they're monetizing me somehow, and I should know whether or not that's actually doing good for me or bad. But because we are so trained in the mindset of, look, so long as I can get while giving little, it's on the path to happiness. And because we live in an economy that's designed that really needs consumption, our default way of thinking will be the consumer mindset. In fact, without conscious resistance, our natural way of relating to things will be as consumers. That will be the default, won't it? And more than that, the problem isn't just that it's anti-adult or anti-human, it's actually anti-gospel. Consumerism says it is better to uh, so better to receive than to give. And Jesus literally said, it is better to give than to receive. The economic modern identity is the consumer, and yet the gospel identity is the servant, modeled after the servant king, Jesus himself. And what we'll see today is that if you really understand the gospel, you'll know that joy and meaning in life is found in following Jesus and in his way of the servant rather than the consumer. And so I'm going to pray that as we open up God's word, that's exactly what we'd be seeing. Let's pray together as we start our time. Father, you delight in your son Jesus, the one that you sent to pay the price for our sin, to redeem us from the curse of sin and death, to save us and give us life. And it's your will that we not be conformed to the world, but transformed into the likeness of Jesus, the servant king. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Father, maybe we be so overwhelmed by the grace of the gospel and your love for us in Christ that we might be transformed to be like him and to serve like him. Amen. Well, the passage that Anna read out to us before is from the second half of a book called Ephesians. And it's called that because an apostle named Paul wrote a letter to a church in Ephesus to a bunch of Ephesians wanting to explain to them not just the gospel, but the implications of the gospel for their life. And there's a really clear distinction. There's kind of a dividing line right down the middle of the book. The first half is all just statements about the truth of the gospel. There's not one single command in the first half of the book. 
And then in the second half is where the commands start to roll through, but they're meant to come from the first half, which is about the gospel. The technical way of describing this, if you're a language nerd, is that all of the first half of the book is in the indicative mood. There you go, words have moods. The indicative mood is kind of uh, when you make statements about things. This is a truth, verbs that are of verbs of statement. And the second half is all in the imperative mood, commands that come from that. So if you have a look at the first half of the book, there is just this catalogue of statements about the gospel and what that means for you. In, in Ephesians 1-3 to we read, God has blessed us with every blessing in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption. In him we have redemption and forgiveness. We have an inheritance in him. We were sealed in the Holy Spirit in him. Christ has been seated at the right hand of God and now he's the head of the body, the church. And then it says, we are therefore one in Christ. We are raised up with Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. It means that there is one head and there's one body, which means that you are reconciled not just to God, but reconciled to one another, that we are one people. And he lays all of this out so that when it gets to the commands, people won't misunderstand it. And in Ephesians 4.1, you get the first command, and it says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul talking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So he says, because of all of this, because of all this truth about the gospel, this is how you're to behave. And this is so important because this is what sets apart Christianity from every other major religion. The Bible says, because God has done this, act in this way. That is, because of this, act like this. Rather than, if you behave this way, then God will treat you in this way. Instead, it says, because God has treated you in this way, behave in this way. It means that identity precedes behavior. Let me explain it in this way. When I was a, a just starting out as a high school teacher, I was in way over my head. I was 21, first time teaching in an all-girls school. I had no idea what was going on. And there were many classes that were just, they were more experienced at harassing teachers than I was at teaching kids. And so I was well in over my head. And a, a, a day came up, like a, a PD day, where you could go and get some training on behavior management. I was like, great. This is, this is exactly what I need right now, a day off and a day to get some training. So I went along to this uh, training day, and there was a principal there from a school that was a behavioral, I guess you'd call it a behavioral unit. Maybe they don't call them that anymore. But basically their school, when I visited it, was a school that had very few students. When you walked into a classroom, there were very few just instruments that could be then turned into weapons, right? So the, the classrooms were pretty bare, and there'd only be like six students, but they were six of the best, elite, naughty students. And every wall pretty much had one of those giant red panic buttons on it, right? And so it was a school that was meant to be, and was actually doing great work in helping kids who had some of the most difficult behavior issues. But I remember this insight that, um, that he taught on the first day of it, and he said this, when you get kids at school who are acting up, and particularly if they're behaving really badly, he says, just to understand them for a bit, just know that the general pattern is that a kid who's got a really difficult home life will try and recreate that environment at the school. And the, it says it sounds crazy, but the way it works is this. If a kid is used to being rejected by authority figures and adults, then they'll try and reproduce that environment at school. 
And the reason behind it is, it's kind of like, well, I'm a bad kid who gets rejected, and so I try and produce from adults rejection. So they'll come to school, and the instinct, the natural instinct, the default will be to provoke rejection. The belief is, I'm a bad kid, so I do bad things. And he said, it's your job as an educator to try and break that circuit. That was one of the most helpful things I ever heard about teaching. There's a truth to it, isn't it? What you believe about yourself will influence your behavior. Paul is saying the same thing here. He says, you have to understand who you are in the gospel first before you start to change and to follow Jesus. Because if you get it wrong, you'll get it all the way wrong. The gospel is, you are loved, so act like it. Not, if you do these things, God will love you. The gospel is, you have been saved, so act like it. Paul says literally here, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. God has done all of this to save you from sin and to make you new. So live out those implications. It's in, in the same way as saying this is the reality, so this is how you should act. Because there is gravity and your body is frail, don't jump off a cliff. Because God has loved you and saved you, you should act in this way. And so when we get to Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, this passage about the church, all of it is built on this, where Paul is saying, because you are one body, because Jesus has saved you, he's the head, there is only one church, this is how you're to act. Because you are a body, act like a body. And this is what he says, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is the church? It is not a building. You will not find that in Scripture. And in fact, we've had to live out that reality over these last two years. We went from a building up there to a building down here to online to a bit of both and then a combination of all three because the truth is the church is not a building or a location. It's a group of people saved by God. There is a global church. We are connected to them all across this world in every language and country and continent. And then there are local gathered churches like ours. And he says, you are a body. You are a body. And then he says, because you are a body, you are to act like it. And what does that look like in Ephesians? Well, the first thing is, he says, there are different parts that are gifted differently to serve the church. He said he gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Just kind of rattling off a few different ministries. Apostles and prophets here most likely is referring to those who wrote the Old and the New Testament to equip the church with the scriptures to be a church, but also evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But notice here why it says they are gifted. So God gives people, gift, gives the church gifted people, not so that they will do all of the ministry, but that they might equip the whole body, body to serve. Did you notice that there? He says that they might be equipped for works of ministry. So it's not that we have evangelists so they can do all the evangelizing, or shepherds so they can do all the shepherding, or teachers so they can do all the teaching. 
but people who are gifted in particular ways to mobilize the whole church to do these things. Those who are with a gift in evangelism, in sharing the gospel, can help the rest of us get better at it. Those who can teach to help the rest of us to teach one another the Bible. Those who are gifted in shepherding to help us to pastor one another and serve one another in that way. And it's the same in all areas. The vision of a healthy church is where people who are gifted are in key positions to help the church build one another up and serve together. And there are two ways that you can get this wrong. The first is sometimes a, a noble-hearted but misguided ethic that the gifting doesn't really matter. In Scripture, character always precedes gifting. But sometimes it can be like, well, look, because like, we are one body and all of that, there's, there's really no point in sort of uh, uh, elevating any kind of gifting. Just everyone have a punt at anything. But the truth is, it says here, God does give people in certain ways to serve the church. I remember years ago in a church context, there was a, um, a really just great-hearted, just servant-minded member of church who saw that there was a gap in the music ministry when it came to drums and took up the mantle to get some drum lessons and to actually learn. Um, but it quickly came about that um, in the end you can't put in what God left out and, uh, and it was becoming maybe more of a, a hindrance than a help in terms of equipping the church to sing that he was doing this. And, and it was a great moment because a one key staff member just took him aside gently and said, look, I just think this might be an area where, where God hasn't gifted you to serve the church. And full credit to him, because all he cared about was serving the church, he's like, you know what, fair call. I was kind of thinking, it was stressing me out anyway. Don't even worry about it. But it was just one kind of minor moment where you can see that God does gift in certain ways people to serve the church and to help the whole church to serve together. But it can go the other way as well where there's such a focus on gifting that it's like there's another class of Christian, really gifted people who therefore do all of the serving. I remember my dad talking about a, a church uh, that he'd grown up in, or knew kind of in his early years of ministry, where the pastor had initially set up Bible study groups. So again, setting up a, a teaching ministry where people were appointed to lead groups, help them to teach one another as you open the Bible together. But he had so little confidence in those leaders that he folded the groups all back into the church so they'd do one big Bible study during the week and he was the only teacher. And it became this thing where he became the central point of teaching in the whole of the church. And that is not the vision that Ephesians has of the church, where one person is a bottleneck. Some have described this as kind of like church as an orphanage, where there's like one or two kind of parent figures and then a whole bunch of kids who just need help and need to be served constantly. That's not a healthy vision for church. Now, a healthy church is where gifted people equip the church to serve one another. Where there is gifting, but there's mutuality in the church serving, where there's no bystanders, but everyone is in it and amongst it together. And where the church is building one another up in love. Where everyone feels connected because everyone is serving and contributing. Do you know one of the biggest challenges for COVID that COVID has presented to churches like ours, but I imagine across the globe, is that it's had an incredibly centralizing effect on church life, hasn't it? Particularly in the lockdowns and in the hardest lockdowns, the, in terms of our gatherings like this on Sunday, because we couldn't actually meet together and other types of ministry and ways of serving were just impossible to actually do, 
it concentrated at times serving teams down to like two or three people. I remember at one point in the first lockdown in 2020, it got to the point where there's only allowed to be three people in the building when we're running the live stream. I, there was one week where I'd prepared a sermon and got out the guitar, because I have just a minor enough gifting to sort of pass in, because the thought was it might, only, it might get to the point where only one person can do it, so it was going to be me and Mel in our house giving the talk, then doing the singing, like trying to bring it all together. But it shrunk everything down. Now, as we go on, we want to be better and better equipped to handle some of the challenges that come with that. But part of our work this year and our mindset needs to be starting to decentralize again, to equip the church to serve one another because that's the vision that Jesus has for his church. That's what a body is, serving one another, using the giftings that God has given us, but also helping that to mobilize the whole church to serve one another. Because the truth is we thrive when we serve. Isn't it interesting, just reeling back to the consumer mindset, you would think that the people or the organizations that you relate to as a consumer would be the organizations you feel most connected to. Because if it's true that I'm happiest when I get as much as I can whilst giving as little as I can, surely the people or places I feel most positive about would be the ones that are giving me the most while I'm giving the least. And yet that's never the case, is it? When you have a largely consumer relationship with an, a group of people, you actually feel reasonably disconnected to them. Let me give you the example this way. Mel and I, my wife and I often have uh, discussions about which coffee shop to go to. Um, my wife is a very relational person who, um, similar to like with, I've heard it's the case with like hairdressers and things, but like feels a certain amount of loyalty to certain stores, baristas, whatever, to the point where if you were to walk past one place with someone else's product, you, you kind of feel like you've betrayed them in a way. So like we'll often like sneak past a place, hiding the coffees, going past another place or waving, you know, as you go by. I, however, am more of the mindset of like wherever the best deal is or the best coffee for the lowest price, that's my place. And so it's funny, but like with that, it means that in the end I have a very light connection with the places that I actually get coffee from because I'm like, look, it's just, this isn't a friendship. We're not going to like, we're not going to hang out after hours. This is just kind of commercial or consumer relationship. Now, say what you think about that, but the truth is the more you apply a consumer mindset to something, the less connected you feel to it. That's the truth, right? It's the ironic truth. But the places where we really serve the most, where you are in the trenches with other people, where you're doing something together, shoulder to shoulder, those are the people, those are the places, the groups that you feel most connected to. And so we want to be a church that's thriving in this way where we are serving one another well. And I just want you to imagine for a bit what it would be like to have this mindset in every area of church life. Imagine coming a group with the mindset of like, I'm not going here to my, my community group just to be taught, but to actually teach others. Think about how that would change things, your approach to group. We're not going there just so that the Bible study leader can actually lead us in the Word of God, but actually... We're there to teach one another, and one person is in charge of making sure that that happens, but we all are responsible for teaching one another. And that also means that if I'm not there, that it's not just that I miss out, other people miss out. Because there might be insights or things that God has given me to share with the group to build them up that won't happen if I'm not there. It's just a different way of thinking. Or with Sundays, thinking rather than just how can I come to be served, but actually to serve. 
There might be new people there who are feeling anxious. There might be people who need prayer. There might be people that I can connect with or encourage. And coming to, to Sunday gatherings with a mindset of like, I want to be there to serve others. And not just in official ministries as we kind of serve together, but in small incidental ways to build one another up. The worldview of consumerism says, I look only to my own immediate interests. But the gospel says, no, a healthy church is a body connected to one another, serving one another, building one another up in love. And that is a strong church. Notice what it says in the passage. That's a church heading to maturity, not blown about by every wind of doctrine. Because everyone is looking to grow and to teach one another, it's not like every time a new teaching comes along, everyone's like, oh, I don't know, maybe my faith is completely gone. No, a strong church is one where everyone is learning Scripture, wanting to teach one another. A strong church is a church where, where people are serving and ministering to one another, building one another up in love. And so this year, we really want to get into gear with this. Of course, no one has a crystal ball or knows what's going to happen. But as much as possible, we want to try and decentralize a few things to mobilize the church to serve as well as we possibly can, regardless of what's to happen over the year coming up. And the first thing, the first implication from this passage is that if we are a body, if we really are the body of Christ, we want to work together more as teams than by rosters. Let me explain kind of what I mean by this. You've heard the phrase that a team is worth more than the sum of the individual parts. Wait, is that that's how it goes? Yeah. Team, yeah, okay. Do the math, carry the one, whatever. The idea is that you, you work better together than as individuals. And not only that, but the, with the metaphor of the body that's here in Ephesians, what is more effective? A single unified body or 3,000 separated limbs? It's obvious, right? A single body works better, is more effective. We work better together. And so as much as possible over this year, for those who are responsible for ministry areas, we want to get people serving together as teams. But the biggest challenge with this is, being a team will mean at times meeting together. And as you run ministries, we know because people are time poor, you want to keep your meetings as sparse as possible. But the truth is, unless teams meet together and we focus on Scripture and what it is that we're actually doing together, we end up just working by rosters as individuals, like dozens of separated limbs rather than as one group or body together. You can think of it in this way. Years ago, I was playing for a soccer team where everyone was time poor. We barely scraped the team together. I got dragged on the team because they were just trying to make up numbers, which is really dignifying, isn't it? Um, but no one had time for training, so everyone just showed up literally five minutes before game time. So people are getting out of the car, like, like dragging the shin pads and boots on and like getting onto the field on time. And it's probably not a surprise to you. You don't have to be, have ever played any sports to know that we didn't really work very coherently as a team that year. And there's a funny kind of threshold where like, if you kind of, if you absolutely minimize the time you spend together and minimize the demands on it, the experience actually gets worse. Of course, you can go the other way. I mean, if you train 50 times a week, especially for Division 50 soccer or whatever we were playing, it's like, all right, just, let's all just calm down a little bit here. But there is a kind of a sweet spot in the middle where the commitment level actually increases the joy of serving rather than decreases it. And so we want to be doing that and we want to be really working with you guys to make sure it's at the ideal load so that we might be working together as teams, supporting one another, backing one another up and doing this together because that's the design that Christ has for his body. So that's the first thing, working as teams over rosters. And the second one is sharing the load. 
The vision here is of a body where every part is doing its bit and where it's all working together. And we want to be a church where we make sure people are evenly loaded, where we're sharing the burden across us as a whole body rather than a few parts overworking while others are underworking. And the reason for this, again, is it's brilliant, the illustration of the body, isn't it? Because we know that bodies are designed to work in unison. Late, uh, kind of mid last year, I injured my shoulder, and so I went to the, the physio. I so reluctantly go to doctors or physio, but it kind of got to the point where I was like, I can't really work around this anymore, it's time to go. And when I got there, the, the diagnosis was that um, my shoulder had kind of been, it's a, it's a vulnerable joint, but it had kind of not been working properly because, and this was the, the, the kind of written diagnosis, because my, the chest muscle had been deconditioned, which was the most generous way of saying that I was weak. And I also like that he said deconditioned, like I once was in condition, <laughs> but now I've, I was once elite, and now I've kind of just, you know, I kind of let it go for a little bit, but... You know, it's time to get back to it. Anyway, but what then happened was other muscles get pulled in to compensate and it puts strain on the tendons and the like and everything kind of gets out of order once that happens. It's designed that all of them would work together and when you do that, you have a healthy body or a healthy joint. That's at least my summary. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of my understanding of, of the body and anatomy. But it is the case that bodies are meant to work together to share load. And so what we want to do in application for this over this year, as well as we possibly can as a church body, we want to share the load well. And so what we're going to do during the slip time today is that I want you to put down there, if you at the moment are actually feeling like you are overloaded at the moment, we we want to actually help you and decrease some of that load. It's not healthy to just keep driving on. God has put limits on your own capacities. You are just human. And not only that, but the body is meant to be working together. And so if you're feeling like you're actually overloaded at the moment, we'd actually love to know that so that we could do something about that. That would be the first one. The second one is if you feel like, you know what, I've actually got a bit of margin. I've got a bit of gas in the tank. I managed to not get COVID over January or something like that, and I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling like the Stephen Bradbury of ever. I'm ahead of the pack. It's Winter Olympics. If you don't know what that is, you should look that up. Um, but you're feeling like, I've got a bit of margin. I could, I could step into something a bit more at the moment. We also would love to hear from you. If you're feeling like, actually, I'm in a ministry at the moment and I feel like I might be able to serve in somewhere else a little bit more effectively or take some more load there, again, we, we would love to hear from you. And the fourth one is, if you're just good, we'd love to hear from you as well. So if you're like, I'm good, I'm loving life right now. It would be great to know how much of our body I feel like everything's kind of in its right place just at the moment. And so when we get to slips time, I'd love to know if you're overloaded, if you've got a bit of margin to do something else, if you wanted to move sideways or you're happy just right where you are. Because over this year, we want to do this as well as possible. COVID is going to present a bunch of challenges with this. Because people get ISO'd and things like that, it means that serving rosters can be really hard to manage. We're going to need help with some of the Sunday gathering teams and particularly with city kids as well. Um, And so if you feel like you could serve in those areas, we're going to be stepping up those to work as teams together this year. But all of this, in all of this, our heart is just to honour Christ and to live out his design of being a church body. Because the truth is the gospel means that we've been made one together. Part of what we looked at last week is that we want to be a church across generations because that is what one body is like. 
But as well as that, we want to be a church that is building one another up in love, where no one feels like they're a bystander or a second-class citizen, but where all of us are on the field together helping and serving one another, that we might make more and stronger disciples of Jesus and that we might press on in our faith, that we might thrive even over these pandemic years. I'm going to pray that that would be the case. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you are the one who has designed us. We thank you most of all that that you have saved us in Christ. And we thank you that you have gifted the church, that you have given us people to serve and to minister, but also that we might all be equipped to serve and minister together. We pray that we might live out this reality that we are one body in Christ and that you might strengthen us over this year to share the load together, to bear one another's burdens, to serve together and all that Jesus might be honoured in our midst. Father, we pray that you'd be strengthening us, you'd encourage the brokenhearted, that you'd strengthen to perseverance those who are running well and all that we might be a church that glorifies your name. We pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.